0: You're listening to Season 8, Episode number 12 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I continue the discussion of mission in the Pauline Epistles. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist, Dr. J.D. Payne. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. And welcome back to another episode of Strike the Match. I am your host, JD Payne. As always, a word of appreciation to you as a listener for allowing me to have uh, some of your time uh, throughout your day uh, to be able to share with you what is on my heart and mind at the moment. And of course, uh, if you have been uh, along with me in this journey throughout season eight, you know that we are in the realm of theology of mission, and so we're going to be continuing that today. Hey, by the way, um, if you hear water running in the background, uh, I noticed that uh, I think my son is upstairs washing his clothes, and so um, some of the ambient noise uh, that you may hear in this episode uh, is uh, probably uh, our uh, washing machine. Again, my uh, my house was not built with my studio in mind, and so uh, you know, what's really funny is that uh, some of the main water pipes actually are in the walls, just uh, two feet away from <laughs> from this microphone, and so uh, so between that and the neighbors mowing outside and uh, different buzzes and beeps and whistles and uh, heaters and air conditioning units throughout uh, the, uh, the environment here. Um, hey, what's a little uh, laundry uh, between us two friends? So, <laughs> hey, if you like this podcast, please consider sharing this with others. I so much not only appreciate you uh, sharing this with others in your circle of influence, but I am... Uh, just like you. I'm very limited in in my reach and you know folks that I do not know and will never have a chance to get to know. But if you think that this resource is of value to them, let me encourage you to pass this on to them and send them a link uh, to uh, this uh, uh, this podcast and encourage them to subscribe. All right, so let us continue where we left off in the previous episode with uh, episode number 11, and that is Mission in the Pauline Epistles. So today, Mission in the Pauline Epistles Part 2, uh, I will be uh, concluding uh, the discussion of uh, the Pauline material. Uh, not, this is not the conclusion of Season 8, but it is the conclusion of the uh, discussion on um, the mission of God in the Pauline literature. Uh, we do have a few, very few episodes left before the conclusion of this season. But let's jump in. All right, so when I continue on with the Pauline literature, the notion of the blessing of the nations continues in the Pauline corpus in four more uh, themes or subthemes, if you will, if you prefer that language. And that is, what we see, and I'll break each of these down. What we see is the blessing of the nations. God is going to bless the nations through a plan. And the way that we see this unpacked in Paul's literature is actually through, to use some contemporary language, uh, that plan is the planting of local kingdom communities, or if you prefer, uh, planting churches. Uh, we also see, number two, um, It's not number two in the list. If you go back and add episode number 11, uh, there are several uh, that I mentioned there. But number two in today's episode. Number two, the blessing of the nations through a process. And that process is the ingathering of the Gentiles. So that which we have discussed before and pondered in the episodes related to theology of mission in the prophets we draw heavily from that or we see, excuse me we see that being picked up by paul number 3 the blessing of the nations through an invitation and that invitation is for the nations to call to the lord and finally number 4 number 4 the blessing of the nations through a practice and that practice is regular and intentional evangelism. With that in mind, let's think about the first one here, blessing the nations through a plan, planting local kingdom communities. Paul was never a permanent attachment to the churches he planted, and I think we need to keep that in mind. We sometimes are quick to call him Pastor Paul. He never referred to himself with that language. Uh, Was he pastoral? Absolutely. But he never referred to himself by that language. Rather, Paul maintained an itinerant ministry. He writes that his approach was to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, as to avoid building on someone else's foundation, from Romans chapter 15, verse 20. Paul's motivation for this method was not because he craved the novel. Rather, the apostle, once again, roots his mission theology in the prophets. Referencing Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Uh, Paul's desire was to follow in Isaiah's servants' footsteps while advancing the gospel so that more people would come to faith. After years of work, Paul concludes he fulfilled his ministry of the gospel, uh, forming an ark, if you will, uh, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Romans chapter 15, verse 19. Uh, Paul claims there is no longer any room for work in these regions, according to verse 23. It is now time for him to labor in new pioneer territory, that being Spain, verse 34. What did Paul mean there was no place left for his labors? Did he think everyone had heard the gospel in this area? Regardless of the meaning, he was confident that it was time for him to depart. After a church was planted in an area, Paul and his teams would continue their apostolic work elsewhere. These transitions to pioneer areas were not to be understood as a lack of care for the new churches. Rather, the apostle who was excited the gospel was in the whole world and bearing fruit and growing, according to Colossians chapter 1 and desired that the message would speed ahead and be honored according to what he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 was the same apostle who desired to present everyone mature in Christ going back to Colossians chapter 1 and bring about the obedience of faith among the nations according to Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 16 so one of the things is that it is a false dichotomy to think that Paul's understanding of mission was either about regeneration or sanctification. Uh, There is no dichotomy between the two. Uh, He was concerned with an increase of disciples and their growth in the faith. Now, the second thing, blessing the nations through a process, uh, the ingathering of the Gentiles that we see in the Pauline literature when we think about the theology of mission— In the same context, um, what we see is that Paul makes plans to work in another territory, referencing the offering of the Gentiles, as I just mentioned, in Romans chapter 15. And what we find is that this thought shows up in Isaiah. So there's the hearkening back to the prophets. This thought shows up in Isaiah, and... Given Paul's penchant for the prophet, it is no wonder some scholars see a connection. Uh, some think the priestly activity of the offering of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 15, verse, six, verse 16, is connected to the prophet's vision of Isaiah chapter 66. Others have advocated a link between Isaiah's words and Paul and the Gentiles who traveled with him to bring the financial assistance to Jerusalem that we see referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If Paul understood himself to be part of the fulfilling the mission of the servant during the last days, then it should be no surprise he uses Isaiahic language reflecting this thought. Paul seems to be combining Isaiah with the Old Testament perspective of the ingathering of the nations, or excuse me, the end gathering of the Gentiles to Zion. So we see this connection taking place in Paul's mind and in his writing as he's developing uh, these concepts. So regardless of how he views this concept of uh, the offering of the Gentiles that he references in the book of Romans, um, Paul, you know, some scholars have talked about Paul may have had in mind the table of nations that we read about in the book of Genesis. Um, There's debate over that. There's discussion over that. James uh, M. Scott wrote a book on that. Uh, talking about that issue, uh, Erkark Schnabel wrote a response to that. I don't want to get into that. I talk about that in my book, uh, Theology of Mission. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to get a copy of that, I would encourage you to do that, and you can find the footnotes that are there, and you can read other sources on this issue. But, but regardless of what's going on in Paul's mind related to the offering of the Gentiles and the eschatological ingathering of the nations, what is clear is that the apostle believed in this end-time, end-gathering of the Gentiles, and that he was a participant in this divine process. The Gentiles were included among the people of God through faith and not by works of the law. Abraham's act of faith, and not that of circumcision, was not only sufficient for salvation, but served as a model for all who followed, according to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6-9. through 9. Speaking of Galatians, uh, the Messiah would come in the fullness of time to redeem those under the law, Galatians 4, 4. But the blessing of Abraham would also come to the Gentiles, Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, which would clearly be the Jews, to show God's truthfulness to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and verses 9. Uh, we see Paul developing uh, you know, his thought in uh, the book of Romans uh, quite a bit on this particular topic. If the eschatological ingathering had begun in the first century, then what did the future hold for Israel? It's a good question to ask when you think about theology of mission. Well, Paul addressing this topic, writes that a remnant in Israel would remain turned off to the gospel until, according to Romans 11.25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This process of Gentile ingathering would create a holy jealousy among Israel, resulting in the elect's salvation. The movement of the Gentiles would be the means by which both, don't miss that part, would be the means by which both the Gentiles and the Jews would come into a relationship with God and under the reign of His Christ. All right, let's talk about briefly blessing of the nations through an invitation. Uh, that is, call to the Lord. And I'll just be very brief on this before I jump into um, uh, the other sub-themes here. Actually, I realize I have left off one of the sub-themes. Uh, I'll hit that in just a second. All right, so, blessing the nations through an invitation. Call unto the Lord. So, Romans chapter 10, we're familiar with uh, that passage in verse 13. Paul writes, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, where does Paul get that concept? Well, he takes it from the prophets, specifically uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Yet the nations will only be able to call on the Lord. And this is important, if someone is sent to them to extend the invitation. So Romans ten fifteen addresses this. You can see how it ties into Isaiah chapter fifty two verse seven, and some scholars would also say, well, it also harkens back to the book of Nahum chapter one, verse number fifteen. So. Part of the means by which Paul understands the mission of God is that in his writings, he believes very strongly that the Gentiles will come into the kingdom. They will experience the blessings of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they have to respond to an invitation. And that is, they have to call upon the Lord. And what we see as far as what that means, is that it's in response to the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul, for example, uh, through the pen of Luke in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 21, is quoted as saying, I have declared to both Jews and Gentiles... So, what is that declaration? I've declared to both Jews and Gentiles repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this invitation... This calling out to God that we see in the prophets related to, for example, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and that Paul describes in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, is, is a declaration and is, is a call of repentance and faith. All right, so one of the sub-themes that I, I, I left out earlier at the start of the program, um, I said that there were four, uh, there's actually um, five. And so the the something that I overlooked is that in Paul's writings there is the blessing of the nations through a people. And particularly, now this is this is building off of the previous podcast. So again, I'm assuming the context there. But particularly the notion of how the nations are blessed through a people is what we see being the concept of God's living temple in Paul's writings. God's living temple in in his writings. So, So, what do we find out? Paul's language, when it comes to language of the temple, and we know that Paul visited the temple according to Acts chapter 21. In fact, he was arrested there because it was believed that he had taken a Gentile into the area where the Gentiles were not to go. Of course, that did not happen, but he was arrested there. So we know that Paul uh, visited the temple, but what we see is that in his writings, his language reveals a shift in understanding regarding the identity of the temple. Now, um, Beal has written a great deal on this topic and i reference him a great deal in in my book and so i'll I'll point you to that if you're curious but what we see is now that the spirit has been poured out on all flesh joel chapter 2 verse 28 paul is able to write the following to the corinthian church in first corinthians chapter 3 you are god's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. God's temple is holy. Why is it holy? Because the Holy Spirit is there, and you are that temple. So you're seeing this shift in the, Paul's understanding from temple being this physical structure to, to that which is representing the body of Christ— the people of God, uh, being now a living temple. Isaiah foretold a time uh, when the foreigner and the eunuch would join themselves to the Lord and that he would bring them to his holy mountain. They would join the Jews for worship at the temple. God's house of prayer is for all peoples, according to Isaiah 56, verses 1-8. through And for Paul, this prophecy finds fulfillment in Jesus, who established a foundation on which Jew and Gentile grow together into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2. The growth of the church begins to fulfill the Old Testament vision of a restored temple. The gathering of the nations occurs, but not to a physical building or nation. The true temple, is no longer on a hill in Jerusalem. The true temple is found where the community of believers is found. Instead of the predominant Old Testament centripetal understanding of the nations streaming to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of God is sent to manifest itself among the peoples of the world. The nations still come to the temple, but not to a physical structure. Rather to a holy people, making proclamation of peace. As both Jew and Gentile enter into relationship with God, the temple will continue to grow until she fills the new earth. Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Now, I will say this, and I think I mentioned this in a previous episode this season, um, there are many scholars that uh, disagree with this interpretation of the future temple. So I just want you to be aware of that. Um, And you may be one of those. And so I just want you to be aware that I am aware of that disagreement that's out there. All right. The blessing of the nations through a practice, and that is regular and intentional evangelism. So this is the last sub-theme that I'm going to address in Pauline literature. All right. a Final contemporary issue needs to be raised. So, think about this for a second. Though Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5, do the work of an evangelist, here's a question. Did Paul expect churches to engage in outward mission in their communities and beyond? Did Paul command his readers to evangelistic labors? Now, while we may be quick to say yes to both of these questions, upon examining the scriptures, the answer is not as clear as most of us would like. Recent scholarship, and again, I'm not going to do a great deal of digging in the weeds here. I reference this in the book, so you can check it out there. But recent scholarship has not been silent on this issue either. So, James P. Ware Uh, argues uh, that the reason Paul offers little exhortation to mission is because mission was assumed. The apostle did not need to tell them to do something they were already doing. Paul Bowers says the answer to these questions is a resounding no. According to Bowers, while Paul was evangelistic and sought the prayers and financial partnerships with churches for gospel advancement, he did not expect those churches to engage in their own apostolic labors. Rather, the churches, like Israel in the Old Testament, were to live such a lifestyle that the nations would be attracted to them. Paul practiced a centrifugal movement to mission, but the churches were to practice a centripetal movement. That is, according to Bowers. Now, um, Rob Plummer. Uh, Rob, who is a friend of mine, former colleague when I taught at Southern uh, Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, has examined Paul's expectations in detail and offers, I believe, very helpful guidance. And I highly recommend uh, his work on this topic, a book titled Paul's Understanding of the Church's Mission. Did the Apostle Paul expect the early Christian communities to evangelize? Uh, For Paul, according to Plummer, for Paul, it is the dynamic nature of the gospel that drives the churches to the nations. So what do we see? Well, the church of the Thessalonians uh, was a prime example of a congregation that continued to carry the gospel beyond themselves with no recorded apostolic exhortation. In fact, in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul saying, you know, this gospel is ringing forth from you. Um, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Uh, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul reveals his excitement that others are preaching the gospel, and his command to the church is to follow in this fashion. Paul begins the letter reminding them of their partnership in the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Paul talks about his imprisonment, that he's imprisoned, and how that has served to spread the gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Um, Contrary to Paul Bowers, uh, James Ware sees within the book of Philippians an explicit command for the church to engage in active mission— and I'll just make this statement. Again, I'm not going to go into depth here, but what we see is that he makes a lengthy argument that Philippians chapter 2, verse 16 is best translated as holding forth the word of life and not holding fast to the word of life as evidence for a missional command, where concludes that Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, I'll let you look it up, reveals that Paul did not understand his apostolic mission as fulfilled in the establishment of firmly founded communities, but in the independent spread of the gospel from the communities he founded. Another passage of Scripture worth considering as we think about this topic of intentional and regular evangelism is Ephesians chapter 6. And it's in that passage in verse 15 related to spiritual warfare that the fight that is to take place against the schemes of the devil involves the Ephesians putting on as shoes readiness given by the gospel of peace. Such language draws from Isaiah's connect. There you go, Isaiah again. Such language draws from Isaiah's connection to the feet of one who announces the good news to Israel, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. This language could possibly be connected to Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Regardless, the language is that of blessing and freedom to those who have been in captivity. Clearly, believers are to be prepared to handle God's word appropriately. Which includes sharing it with regularity and intentionality. I'll give you another passage to think about as I begin to kind of bring this episode to a conclusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. And you really have to get the entire context. You really have to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 10, and 11. So, what do we see? Well, in the context, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1. Paul makes a statement. He says, "Be imitators of me as I am of Christ." Now, this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 comes at the conclusion of Paul's discussions of his example and command to be a servant to others. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, Paul says he would become all things to all people that by all means he might save some. And he talks about giving up many rights uh, that uh, he and Barnabas could have uh, privy to. Um, so, what do you get? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, all the way through the first verse of chapter 11. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all in excuse me, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What we see in Paul's thought, finally, churches such as the one in Thessalonica, they were already involved in sharing the gospel. They did not need someone to tell them to start doing what they were already doing. Uh, Paul wrote to challenge them to display the kingdom ethic before the world. Uh, We see that he writes to the Philippians, and he's exhorting them and encouraging them Uh, how the gospel is spreading as a result of his incarceration. We see him writing to the Corinthians, talking about uh, imitating him in the spreading of the gospel. We see in that passage on spiritual warfare the importance about the gospel that, that loosens the shackles of sin that bind others and keep them from the kingdom. All right, folks, so as I bring it to a conclusion, here it is, the Pauline Literature. It is a deep reservoir of information related to God's mission in the world. We are very much in agreement, I would say, I'm assuming, with David Bosch. When he made this statement in his book, Transforming Mission, he said, Paul's thinking, truth to tell, is so complex that at the end of a reflection like this one has the distinct feeling of still standing only at the beginning yet into this theological depth paul advocated a simple gospel that was a stumbling block to the jews and foolishness to the gentiles 1 corinthians chapter 1 verse 23 everything changed for Paul when his relationship with Jesus began on the road to Damascus. Paul was convinced that salvation was extended by faith to Jew and Gentile through Jesus who completed the Messianic mission. But before the application of such faith could happen, the church had to go to those who had never heard and proclaim the good news of a message of redemption and restoration that comes through judgment. Though Paul's preaching... Kingdom communities would come into existence. They were started in the Roman provinces. And these local expressions of the body of Christ grew in the faith, they carried the gospel to others, and they brought glory to God. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of Strike the Match. And Lord willing, we will continue in the next episode looking at theology of mission in the general epistles until then take care you have been listening to strike the match with jd you can find jd on instagram facebook or follow him on twitter at jd underscore and if you'd like to check out more books posts and podcast episodes visit jdpain.org you can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite android app or at itunes and we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.